Hi, this is Perry Marshall. You're listening to a free, highly abridged version of Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design. The full, unabridged version is available on Audible and Amazon. Part 3. How Evolution Really Works Chapter 11. Blade Number 1, Transposition. The 70-year-old Nobel Prize-winning discovery that nobody talks about. A secret, a secret. He says I've got a little secret. A secret, a secret. A secret kind of secret. I'm aching for to shout it to every daffodil and tell the world about it. In fact, I think I will. Dean Martin. Pregnant women who arrived at Vienna General Hospital's Obstetrics Clinic 1 in 1846 begged to be admitted to Obstetrics Clinic 2. Clinic 1 was well known for maternal deaths from childbed fever. Sometimes these women pleaded with the admission staff on their knees. That year, the death rate from childbed fever in Clinic 1 was 11.4%, 260 deaths total. But in Clinic 2, it was only 2.7%. Some women, upon being refused admission to the second clinic, turned and walked out the door, choosing to give birth in the open streets. They knew their chances of an infection-free birth and escaping death were better on the street than in the hospital. Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis resolved to solve this riddle by conducting a series of experiments. One such experiment concerned the priest bringing last rites to dying women. He passed through five wards before reaching the final sick room. When patients would hear the priest's attendant and her ringing bell, they would shudder with fright. The women believed this increased their chances of succumbing to the fever. Semmelweis persuaded the priest to walk a different way without ringing the bell, but the deaths continued. Another suggestion was that women in Clinic 1 delivered babies while lying on their backs, while women in Clinic 2 were on their sides. Semmelweis tested that too. Again, no difference. The following year, Semmelweis colleague Jacob Kaleshka cut his finger with a scalpel while he was performing an autopsy. Autopsies were routinely performed in one section of Clinic 1. Jacob died in agony with symptoms of childbed fever. Semmelweis theorized that cadaveric matter from the scalpel had gotten into Kaleshka's bloodstream. He proposed that the medical staff and students became carriers of infectious material. He noticed that the smell of cadavers was still strong on doctors' hands after they washed and went into the maternity ward. He also noticed that if he washed his hands in chlorinated lime, the smell disappeared. He ordered all medical students to wash their hands in his new disinfectant, and in 1848, mortality from childbed fever dropped to 1.27% in Clinic 1. Mortality in Clinic 2 was 1.33%. During two months in 1848, the death rate was zero. At this time, no one understood the true nature of bacteria and pathogens. Back then, scientists described disease to atmospheric, cosmic, telluric changes across entire regions. Some had theories about overcrowding, but Clinic 2 was more crowded than Clinic 1. Despite Semmelweis' success, his colleagues in the medical profession in general refused to accept his findings. In absence of hard evidence of these cadaverous particles, critics scorned his theory as magical and superstitious. Did Semmelweis really expect educated men to believe that 
corpse particles might turn a person into a corpse with no specified mechanism after a single contact? Ridiculous. Semmelweis was declined reappointment at the Vienna Hospital in 1849. He moved to Hungary, where he took a position in a maternity ward. There, mortality rates also fell dramatically. Word of Semmelweis' success spread across Europe, and so did opposition to his ideas. Dr. Charles Meigs, a leading obstetrician from Philadelphia, retorted, Doctors are gentlemen, and gentlemen's hands are clean. The head of the Copenhagen Maternity Hospital argued, It seems improbable that enough infective matter or vapor could be secluded around the fingernails to kill a patient. Semmelweis published a book on his results and became obsessed with childbed fever. He drank heavily. He began lashing out at his critics in a series of open letters, denouncing them as irresponsible murderers and ignoramuses. In 1865, suffering from stress, overwork, and possible dementia, he was referred to a mental institution. He was lured into the asylum under a pretense of visiting a colleague's institute. When he realized what was happening, he struggled to leave. He was seized by guards and severely beaten, confined to a straitjacket, and thrown into a cell. Two weeks later, he perished in a delirium of fever and chills from a gangrenous wound inflicted by the guards. Ironically, the cause of his death was infectious disease entering his bloodstream through the open skin. Just like the colleague who cut his finger performing an autopsy in Vienna. A new director took his place at the Hungarian maternity ward. Handwashing became a thing of the past. Mortality rates skyrocketed 600%. Thousands of women and babies died from the fever, and no one objected. Handwashing did not come into vogue until 20 years later when Louis Pasteur popularized his germ theory of disease. The term Semmelweis reflex refers to new knowledge being rejected because it overturns entrenched norms, popular beliefs, and accepted paradigms. Barbara McClintock, Champion of the Smart Cell A full century after Semmelweis, cytogeneticist Barbara McClintock performed meticulous experiments manipulating chromosomes in maize. Maize is known as Indian corn and has variously colored kernels. DNA was still poorly understood in the 1940s, but scientists clearly understood that each cell contained genetic material with sections called genes and chromosomes. McClintock could observe chromosomes in her microscope. She would damage chromosomes and observe what happened based on the changes in the colored kernels of corn. Dr. Barbara McClintock developed such intimate familiarity with maize that she could detect rearrangements of genes and chromosomes by studying the kernel patterns. Even though she had a reputation for her intuitive grasp of the plants she studied, in reality, she painstakingly documented hundreds of plants and thousands of kernels in each experiment. Remember the fruit fly experiments? McClintock's experiments were similar. She, too, used organisms damaged by radiation. She discovered that radiation broke chromosomes and triggered editing systems in real time. Cells would reconstruct the damaged chromosome with another section of radiation-broken genetic material. 
Dr. McClintock began to construct a picture of what happened when she damaged a chromosome. In one experiment, she hacked her corn plants in a very clever and original way, almost like a modern computer programmer hacks into a system to reveal its vulnerabilities. Using plants that needed to align chromosome pairs with inverted code segments, she created a situation where cells in their offspring were forced to join broken chromosomes together repeatedly to reproduce successfully. Each generation created new instabilities and code combinations. These required further repairs for the plant to grow. The plants she hacked were unable to recover their original information. A few of them improvised. They sensed the damage they could not repair and activated previously latent parts of the maze genome. They succeeded in patching damaged DNA with a new kind of genetic element, a transposable element. Their movement is called transposition. Transposition is part of the cell's toolbox for re-engineering its own DNA. By moving to new places, they changed expression of the genome. McClintock named them controlling elements. McClintock was a hacker in the noblest sense of the word. She subjected a system to something that was radically unexpected and got a surprising and gratifying result. It was so surprising, it took decades for the world to see it. The Intuition and Discipline of Barbara McClintock. When asked about the difference between the fruit fly experiments and McClintock's maze experiments, her colleague, Dr. James Shapiro of the University of Chicago, explained it this way. X-rays break chromosomes, triggering a built-in repair system that is used as a normal feature of life. So one would not expect much in the way of evolutionary innovation from X-ray exposure, although it does lead to chromosome rearrangements. McClintock posed her plants an entirely different type of challenge, which resulted in the activation of transposable elements and other genome restructuring activities. She explains this, although in rather technical terms, in her Nobel Prize speech. Basically, she gave them a single broken end that could not be joined to another end until the chromosome had duplicated. The result of joining the two duplicated ends was a chromosome with two centromeres that would go to opposite daughter cells at division, creating a chromosome bridge that had to break for division to complete. This breakage-fusion bridge cycle was a continuous genome instability that had to be resolved for normal growth to resume. However, her hallmark was her character and personality. McClintock was a very special person. I tried to capture this in my obituary of her. She had an exceptionally curious and open mind and paid close attention to what the plants were telling her. She also had a keen sense of the temporary nature of fashionable scientific notions, as she also explained in her Nobel Prize address. Combined with a furious work ethic and deep knowledge of maize cytogenics and how to exploit them experimentally, these traits contributed to her amazing accomplishments. In other words, even though noise always destroys information, the plot had thickened. 
Barbara McClintock had discovered that plants possess the ability to recognize that data has been corrupted. Then they repair it with newly activated genome elements, and in the process of repairing the data, the plants can develop new features. McClintock did not have to kill her plants to get them to adapt. She only had to damage a chromosome, meaning that natural selection was not essential to the evolutionary process. At least in some cases, nothing died. Of course, she also provided the best possible conditions for these plants to flourish. Yet, the plant was still evolving. Why? Because it was actively working to safeguard its genome for the next generation. The plants then passed these activated transposable elements to their offspring. McClintock showed that you can get variation and adaptation before natural selection even has a chance to do its culling. Semmelweis Reflex to Transposition In 1951, McClintock presented her findings to a symposium at Cold Spring Harbor in New York. Biographer Evelyn Fox Keller wrote that audience reaction in 1951 to transposition was stony silence, punctuated only with muttering and muffled laughter. She described the reception of her research as puzzlement, even hostility. She experienced what Dr. Semmelweis had experienced almost exactly 100 years before, accusations of mysticism and superstition. You might wonder if she got this reaction simply because she was a woman. While she certainly was a pioneer in that regard, she had earned considerable respect and was generally treated well, but her audience had no grid for anything like this. Unlike Semmelweis, McClintock didn't flame her critics with nasty letters. She didn't start drinking either. Instead, she stepped up her commitment to research and resolved to not broadcast her work. For the next 20 years, she was pretty much quiet about her discoveries. How rare it is for people far ahead of their time to stick to their guns and patiently wait for history to prove them right. Then, in 1968, McClintock's colleague James Shapiro confirmed bacteria could also transpose elements in DNA. In the 1970s, transposition began to receive wide recognition as a vital mechanism of genome change. More researchers independently confirmed what McClintock had already discovered. Organisms edit their DNA. In 1983, she received the Nobel Prize for her discovery of transposition. In 2005, her picture appeared on a U.S. postage stamp, which includes a diagram that shows how she set up cells to rearrange DNA segments. She became a science celebrity. Scientists around the world enlisted her help to solve seemingly intractable problems. Speaking invitations poured in from all over the world, and Harvard University granted her an honorary PhD. Today, she is regarded as one of the finest scientific minds of the 20th century. So, why is transposition omitted from entry-level textbooks even today? Why do the most popular evolution books neglect to say anything about this powerful adaptive mutation system? Several popular textbooks, like Human Biology 7th Edition by Daniel Chiris, make no mention. Little or nothing is said about it in mainstream evolution books by Dawkins and Coyne. 
McClintock's results are not omitted from mainstream evolution because her findings haven't been verified and accepted by the scientific community. They have, and any high school student is quite capable of understanding the concept. A sketch of the starting point of her discovery fits on a postage stamp. Transposition is a poster child for the chasm between evolution as fed to the general public and evolution as practiced by real biologists. All serious biologists know about transposition. No one disputes it. But while you can easily explain it to a 10-year-old, my experience is that not one regular person in a 100 has ever heard a thing about it. McClintock's work continues to get the Semmelweis treatment even now. When you ask a biologist how evolution works, he'll usually say random mutations and natural selection. But as we've seen, the random mutation theory is wrong. And since nearly every cell in existence is capable of transposition, a far more accurate answer would be transposition and natural selection. How come they're not telling us about transposition? All I can think of is that McClintock's discoveries fly in the face of old-school Darwinian dogma. Her mobile genetic elements were anything but random. Cells cut and splice their DNA in specific locations and patterns. Like Semmelweis critics, people schooled in the Darwinian paradigm are blind to the import of McClintock's work. In personal conversations on my blog, I found that many who believe evolution is random and purposeless deeply resent transposition because it implies that life follows some kind of plan or formula, precisely the notion that Darwin allegedly overturned in 1859. Again, as I said in chapter 10, any theory that is not searching for a pattern or formula behind DNA mutations is not science. Transposition is blade one, of the Evolution 2.0 Swiss Army Knife. It is a central process for ongoing genetic innovation. Cells swap sections of their DNA when they need to adapt to their environment. Think of transposition as cut, copy, paste for genetic information inside a cell. Like when you write an article and decide to rearrange paragraphs or even pull out half of one chapter and reinsert it after a different chapter. Bacteria do this, plant and animal cells do it too. So transposition, for example, could change ABC123DEFGH into ABCDEF123GH. In concept, transposition is very simple. Rearranging coding sequences A, B, C, etc. within DNA. In practice, it's dazzlingly sophisticated, just like a computer program that rearranges blocks of its own code. Protozoans are known to be able to arrange 100,000 segments of their own DNA in real time. When cells encounter hostile chemicals and threats, like McClintock's corn plants, they adapt. It might even mean that when giraffes needed longer necks to reach the leaves high in the trees, they didn't have to wait for a random occurrence to make the change, but rather a system switched on and engineered a solution. McClintock's work implies that, like a computer program that rewrites itself on the fly, cells use their mutation algorithm to make smart substitutions, and a longer neck, like differently patterned corn, could be the result. 
Old school Darwinism versus evolution 2.0. Does transposition contradict neo-Darwinism? If we're going to use consistent terminology, yes it does. Neo-Darwinism by definition says evolutionary changes are caused by random mutations and genetic drift. It emphasizes that these changes are gradual and not goal-driven. Transposition and other mechanisms that follow are targeted adaptations to threats. They are neither random nor gradual because they respond to specific threats and exhibit known patterns. Genetic engineers get predictable results because they have learned they can manipulate transposition in repeatable ways. Even though many scientists have simply added transposition to our understanding of evolution and labeled it Darwinian, McClintock's work is a post-Darwinian theory of evolution. I believe this is why her discoveries were resisted for decades and why entry-level biology books say so little about it. Clearly, theories of evolution have come a long way and incorporated many new discoveries. To put any of these major discoveries of the last 50 years under the Darwinian umbrella is to constantly redefine Darwinism, giving Darwin far too much credit. Modern research shows that a great deal of the modern synthesis is obsolete.